Due to the graphic nature of these crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of substance abuse, sexual assault, and child abuse that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. Please note, the subjects of this episode are referred to by pseudonyms to protect the identities of the parties involved, including Kate Brennan and Paul. Paul strolled to the back of the church, trying his best to look somber. He had to look like he was grieving, even if he actually wasn't. It was, after all, his father's memorial service. He gazed over past the crowd of mourners sitting in the pews, wondering if any of them were as bored as he was. He tried to hide his smile as he spotted a beautiful woman seated in one of the last rows. Her name was Kate. Paul barely knew her. They'd only just met at a party and she'd come as a guest of his aunt. But his heart fluttered all the same. In the back of his mind, he wondered if she'd come to the service in the hopes of seeing him again. He couldn't help himself. He started walking toward her, turning sideways to edge down one of the long pews. He tried to ignore the small thrill he felt when Kate smiled at him. She was practically his already. Her eyes seemed to be inviting him in. He couldn't wait to take her up on the invitation. I'm Lainey Hobbs, and this is Crimes of Passion, a podcast original. The legal definition of a crime of passion is a violent crime that occurs in the throes of extreme emotion, leaving no time to reflect on the consequences. But in this show, we explore how passionate relationships sometimes lead us to criminal activity. How does a husband and wife become killer and victim, or killer and co-conspirator? If there's a thin line between love and hate, what manipulates our relationships into deadly results? You can find episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Crimes of Passion for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Crimes of Passion in the search bar. This week, we're covering the relationship between a 41-year-old freelance writer and her wealthy boyfriend. The woman has chosen to remain anonymous due to safety concerns. However, in 2009, she wrote the book, In His Sights, under the pseudonym Kate Brennan. In this account, Kate described how she was seduced by a charming photographer who she called Paul. As their relationship progressed, Paul revealed increasingly disturbing details about himself. Eventually, Kate realized that she'd fallen for a manipulator intent on controlling her. Next week, we'll talk about how Kate tried to escape Paul's clutches. We'll also discuss how Paul retaliated and the decade he spent trying to terrorize Kate into submission. In her book, Kate Brennan explained how she was conditioned to fall in love with abusive men even before she met Paul. She described her family as complicated, her father frequently went on alcoholic rages and her mother enabled his addiction. Kate said, I was trained to forgive anything in the name of love, the name calling, the blows, the hateful looks. Later, her father became sober and Kate's relationship with her parents improved, but the scars of her youth stayed with her. 
she promised herself that she would never date an active addict. When she was introduced to Paul in the summer of 1991, 41-year-old Kate didn't think she had any reason to worry at first. They met at a party, and she noted early on that he wasn't much of a drinker. When Paul approached Kate that night, they connected over their mutual bond with his aunt. She was the host of the party and a good friend of Kate's who lived in the same building. Paul and Kate were about the same age. Since he worked as a freelance photographer and she as a freelance writer, both enjoyed flexible schedules. In their free time, each loved to travel in search of adventure. At the end of the party, Paul told Kate that he'd love to see her again, but for the next few weeks, their busy lives kept them apart. Then, early that fall, Kate heard some shocking news that brought Paul back into her orbit. His father had been murdered. Kate accompanied Paul's aunt to the memorial service. Even in grief, Paul was glad to see Kate. As he leaned in for a kiss on the cheek, he whispered in her ear that he was hoping she'd come. A few days later, he paid a spontaneous visit to her apartment and asked her out on a date. That night, Kate and Paul met for dinner and chatted about their favorite movies. The two of them enjoyed what seemed like a perfect date. Paul was polite and respectful. After dinner, he even asked for Kate's permission to kiss her. At the end of the night, he invited Kate back to his house, and she accepted. His place was enormous and opulent, with black marble fireplaces and expensive white tile. But the decor seemed sterile and impersonal. She wrote, The whole thing resembles nothing so much as a party room in an upscale condominium. Paul gave her a tour and then showed her to his bedroom where they spent the night together. Kate knew from talking with Paul's aunt that he was incredibly wealthy from his family inheritance. He was lucky enough that he didn't have to work. Even so, Kate learned that his riches came at a price. Paul rarely discussed his family, but Kate could tell that he'd had a difficult childhood, like her. She later wrote, Nothing he tells me suggests his mother and father ever loved each other, or him for that matter. If Kate's perception was correct and Paul lacked affection growing up, it could have caused lasting psychological damage. Before I continue with Paul's psychology, please note that I am not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but I have done a lot of research for the show. In a 2010 study from Duke University, led by epidemiologist Joanna Asha Maselko, researchers found that infants who received more affection from their mothers were less likely to become emotionally distressed, anxious, or hostile adults. Dr. Maselko explained that a child's exposure to the bonding hormone oxytocin likely plays a vital role in future mental health. She said, Oxytocin adds to the perception of trust and support and hence is very helpful in building social bonds. It's plausible that close parent-child bonds help set up the child for more effective social interactions and mental health in the future. Research shows that an affectionate parental relationship is also fundamental to future romantic relationships. In a 2013 paper published by Catherine Pescuzzo, a child's insecure attachment to his parents was found to predict a more anxious romantic attachment style later. 
And according to a 2017 study led by psychology professor Teresa Wynn, spouses with a history of child abuse have reported lower levels of marital satisfaction later on. All of this may have rung true for Paul. Kate didn't know much about Paul's past, but she did know that he struggled with romantic relationships. He'd been divorced twice. But whatever difficulties Paul may have had in the past, he didn't hold back on his affection for Kate. After spending hours getting to know one another, he and Kate had sex. When she left his home the next morning, he called her just minutes later, asking for a second date. Kate happily agreed. Soon, she and Paul were accompanying each other to art museums, films, and theater performances. For the most part, they shared an easy camaraderie, but Kate soon noticed that Paul could sometimes be pushy about getting his way, especially when it came to physical fitness. Paul enjoyed outdoor activities more than Kate. After she declined to go rollerblading with him, he continued to bring it up, ignoring her refusal until she finally agreed. She begrudgingly tried rollerblading once, and when she didn't like it, Paul seemed to take it personally. He was pushy in other ways too. When they weren't together, he called her multiple times a day. More than once, he tried to convince her to buy a cell phone so that he could always reach her, no matter where she went. Sometimes he didn't even bother calling. He showed up unannounced at Kate's apartment, even when they had no plans together. It all made Kate a little uncomfortable. She had a full life on her own. She was trying to balance a career, friendships, and family relationships. She couldn't devote all her time to romance, and she didn't want to. But Paul didn't have a steady job. His parents were deceased, and he wasn't close with the family he had left. He had all the time in the world to focus solely on her. Although his excessive attachment sometimes worried Kate, she couldn't help but feel flattered by it too. He was constantly giving her gifts, paying her compliments, making her feel special. Early in their relationship, he told her he loved her, that he'd never loved anyone else the way he loved her. Kate couldn't help but be swept up by it. Paul didn't just win Kate over, he charmed her family as well. When she invited him to dinner at her sister's house, he was the perfect fun uncle to her nieces and nephews. He went out of his way to read them stories and play games with them. When he accompanied Kate to a family funeral early that winter, he bantered with her brothers like he was one of them. He worked hard to integrate himself to the people in Kate's life. He was so relaxed and personable, it was easy for him to win them over. After meeting Paul, nearly everyone told Kate that her boyfriend was wonderful. Though the relationship was still new, at the time they had only known each other a few months, Kate began to see a future with Paul. But it wasn't always smooth sailing. Around the Christmas holidays, Paul told Kate that he was taking a trip to Hawaii alone. He said he wanted to take a vacation away from the things that reminded him of his late father. Paul was gone for two weeks. He kept in touch for the first part of his trip, calling Kate every day. But then, a few days before he was scheduled to come home, Kate called his hotel room and got a do not disturb recording. She left a message, but never got a call back. 
After weeks of talking to him every day, his sudden silence made Kate suspicious. Kate hung up the phone and curled up in bed. Self-doubt settled over her. For months, Paul was the one seeking her affection. She had to keep him at arm's length when he moved too fast. Now, everything felt switched. She was acting needy and insecure. It made her feel pathetic. She didn't want to sit by the phone waiting for a man to call. The longer she waited, the angrier she got. She wanted to go to sleep, but she felt too restless. A growing certainty ate at the back of her mind. Clearly, Paul was avoiding her, and her intuition gnawed at her. There was no innocent explanation. He had to be hiding something. The most obvious reason she could think of was that he was with another woman. She thought back on the last few months, Paul's fawning declarations of love. She wondered if he had meant any of it, or if it was all just a lie. When Paul returned and Kate picked him up from the airport, Kate asked him outright whether he'd been with someone else. He claimed he had simply taken a nap and then forgotten to remove the do not disturb request for his room. He acted offended that she was accusing him and cast off all blame. He made her feel completely irrational for doubting him. Kate accepted his answer for the moment. She didn't know what to believe anymore. Coming up, Kate uncovers some of Paul's secrets as the relationship gets more serious. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. In the winter of 1992, 41-year-old writer Kate Brennan began a relationship with a rich, charming photographer she referred to as Paul. He pursued her with an aggressive intensity at first. He showered her with attention and gifts, called her multiple times a day, and told her that he had never loved anyone the way he loved her. But after a few months of dating, Paul went on a vacation alone and stopped answering Kate's calls. When he returned, he initially denied that he had been with someone else. But a few days later, Paul came over for dinner and told Kate he needed to make a confession. He told her that he had been seeing someone else. They had met up together while he was in Hawaii, just as Kate suspected. He explained that the relationship meant nothing to him. He only started seeing her so that he could be sure he was ready for a serious relationship with Kate. He begged her to forgive him. Kate was furious not just about the betrayal, but because he'd gaslit her into thinking she was crazy for being suspicious. She demanded that Paul leave her house immediately. She was ready to end the relationship then and there, but Paul wouldn't let her go without a fight. He called her on the phone relentlessly over the next few days. He left messages on her answering machine apologizing and begging for her to take him back. 
When Kate refused to answer his calls or respond to his messages, he came to her apartment. Paul waited outside her door, pleading with her until she finally relented. Kate credited this behavior to her parents' unhealthy dynamic. By watching them, I've been trained to take pity on men who look pathetic and sorrowful. In a 1991 paper from the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology, researchers found evidence that women who grow up with an alcoholic parent are more likely to display codependent behavior in future relationships. The paper described codependency as a necessity of obtaining and preserving affection, even at the expense of engaging in a dependent, exploitative relationship. Authors Deborah Leon and Jeff Greenberg hypothesized, having learned to obtain approval and self-esteem by conforming to the demands of an exploitative person, women with alcoholic parents will continue to seek opportunities to help such people. Kate recognized Paul's behavior as destructive and hurtful, but she still felt the need to help him and fix him. She agreed to give their relationship another try, if he agreed to couples counseling. In therapy, Paul blamed his behavior on his father's recent violent death. Their therapist was sympathetic to his explanation, agreeing with Paul that he was probably reacting to trauma. Paul became obsessed with the details of his father's death. He kept a photograph of his father's murderer. He told Kate, I don't want to forget what he looks like. But then Paul reached out to the murderer's ex-girlfriend and offered to pay for her daughter's education. Kate couldn't understand him. She even wondered if his actions would hurt the criminal case. When she questioned Paul about it, he refused to discuss the matter. Kate dropped the subject. However, it made her question Paul's apparent generosity. At first, it seemed like a positive trait, but the more she got to know him, the more she noticed that he became overly familiar with people too quickly. Sometimes this meant giving strangers money. In other instances, he tried to befriend people he barely knew. Kate recalled a time when he started a conversation with a woman standing in front of them in a movie line and then invited her to join them for dinner. Paul claimed he was just being nice, but Kate noticed every time he went out of his way to be nice to a stranger, it was always a woman. Kate didn't like it, but as usual, Paul made her feel like she was being unreasonable for saying so. He stayed calm and made excuses while she got worked up. It seemed like every time Paul's actions upset Kate, it was always her problem, never his. He always managed to justify his behavior while criticizing her reaction to it. But even as Paul tried to downplay his issues, Kate noticed hints of a secret rage simmering inside of him. She described how they decided to take a judo class together. At one point, they were partnered with each other practicing throws. The instructor warned Paul that he didn't need to use his full strength since he was larger than Kate. But when Paul threw her to the ground, it knocked the wind out of her. He did it again and again, even after the instructor told him to ease up. Later, when Kate asked why he was so angry at her, he denied it. I don't get angry. Kate reflected that she would have broken up with Paul if they weren't in therapy together. 
But anytime she dwelled for too long on the negative aspects of their relationship, she was reminded of his sad childhood. She thought about how recently he'd lost his father. She knew how alone he was without her. The thought filled her with pity. It wasn't just that Paul told her he loved her. He seemed to need her as well. Kate couldn't resist it. As months passed, Kate tried to foster intimacy by asking Paul about his past and his childhood. Paul never wanted to discuss it. He claimed it had nothing to do with their relationship. He wanted to focus on the present and the future. Whenever she brought it up, Paul changed the subject, often wanting to talk about a vacation with her instead. In the fall of 1992, they made plans to travel to Scotland. Paul wanted to escape the memories of his father and move forward, so they went. The trip started off well. They spent days exploring the beautiful highlands. They even talked about buying a cottage together there. Kate wrote, Paul acts like the man I've come to love, tender and attentive. But Paul could turn from affectionate to hurtful at a moment's notice. After they had been enjoying themselves for two weeks, he suddenly told Kate that he wasn't sexually attracted to her anymore. He suggested things might be different if she were more athletic. When she pointed out that she looked the same as when they first met, he gave another excuse. He'd lost his attraction to her because she wasn't fun enough. Incredibly, Paul acted perplexed when Kate took offense at his comments. After all, he said he loved her. He wanted to start a family with her. Kate balked at the suggestion, but tried to stay calm in the moment. Instead of blaming him, she tried to find a rational explanation for his behavior. She'd long suspected he might have been a victim of childhood abuse. She asked him if he had possibly suffered from sexual abuse as well. The question made Paul furious. He wasn't the one with the problem, he insisted. She was. When Kate pressed the issue, he suddenly admitted something. He had a childhood memory he couldn't explain, of something being forced into his mouth. Kate was horrified, but Paul immediately recanted his confession. It meant nothing, he said. Yet again, Kate was stricken with sympathy for Paul. He seemed so damaged. She later wrote, he's drowning, I'm the lifeboat. When they returned from their trip, Paul tried to spend as much time with Kate as he could, but they were unable to be in the same room together without fighting. By that point, Paul and Kate had been seeing each other for about a year. They'd been in therapy for months, but the relationship wasn't getting better. Kate later said that she had been planning to leave Paul after the Scotland trip. For a few days, she refused to see him, but as always, he refused to let her go. He called her incessantly. When she finally answered the phone, Paul invited her to join him outside for a walk so they could talk over their relationship. As they strolled by the lake, Paul told Kate he wanted her to come live with him. He told her he was afraid of ending up like his father, who he called a cruel and sexually deviant man. Paul claimed that being with Kate was the only thing that could save him from meeting the same fate. He couldn't bear the thought of losing someone so strong, patient, and kind. He convinced her that they were only going through a rough patch. It was a matter of bad timing. 
that they happened to get into a relationship so soon after his father's murder. But he promised her that things would be different from now on. He was going to seek out private therapy in addition to their couple's counseling. As they walked, Kate tried to focus on the pleasant scenery instead of the storm of emotions roiling inside her. She wanted to believe in Paul, but when she looked back on her own turbulent childhood, she recalled too many painful memories. She remembered how her mother would forgive her father again and again, no matter how much he hurt them, no matter how horrible his behavior. Then again, her father had changed in the end. He'd eventually gotten sober, and after everything, her parents still loved each other. Kate knew it was possible for people to change. After everything she'd been through with Paul, she wanted to believe that he could get better too. Kate reluctantly agreed to move in with Paul. He was thrilled. He was convinced that more time together would solve their problems. Kate tried to convince herself that he was right. Coming up, Paul's cruel and domineering side overwhelms Kate until she begins searching for a way out of their relationship. Now, back to the story. In 1992, 42-year-old Kate Brennan recommitted to her turbulent relationship with her boyfriend Paul. Though he could be cruel, he convinced Kate that he loved her more than anyone else. When he promised to commit himself to therapy, Kate agreed to move in with Paul despite her reservations. Paul felt confident that living together would improve their relationship. At first, Paul seemed to be right. Kate noticed that Paul's mood had improved once she moved in, presumably because he had gotten what he wanted. It meant that he acted sweet and attentive to her. Still, Kate was cautious. Soon, Paul began pushing again. Now he wanted her to marry him. Kate felt it was too soon. She didn't know if she ever wanted to get married, but she couldn't deny that they were happier now. Paul made good on his promise to seek help. He even began attending 12-step meetings intended for children of addicts. He also enrolled in undergraduate courses. He'd never finished his degree and he'd always dreamed of becoming a doctor. Kate was supportive. The fact that he was pursuing other interests was a positive step. It meant he could fill his life with things outside of their relationship. But the more she tried to believe in their future, the more obvious it was that Paul was keeping things from her. A few months after settling in, Kate received a frantic call from her sister. She had gone on an errand and stopped to get milk from a convenience store. Because her children were sleeping and she'd only be a minute, she left them in the van. But when she stepped away, a man tried to break into the vehicle. Luckily, she ran outside and the man jumped into his own car and fled. She memorized his license plate as he drove away and reported the incident to the police. When Kate told Paul about what happened, he immediately offered to help. He told her he had a friend who could search the plates faster than the police. Paul claimed he was one of the best computer hackers in the country. Paul passed the license plate number to his friend, and within minutes, he shared the results. 
It turned out the man who targeted Kate's sister was someone Paul knew. It was a former employee from one of the companies Paul inherited from his parents. Paul told Kate he'd fired the man. He speculated that his former employee had planned to kidnap Kate's niece and nephew to extract a ransom from him. Unfortunately, they didn't have proof that the man was trying to kidnap the children. When police picked the suspect up, he claimed he was just trying to check on the kids since they were alone in the car. Authorities let him go. Later, Kate wondered whether Paul was telling the truth. Why would a man who was out for revenge against Paul target her sister? It was also strange that Paul claimed to have fired the man in the first place. As far as Kate knew, his companies required very little management from him. But at the time, it didn't occur to her to be suspicious. She was just grateful for his help. Over the next few months, Paul and Kate's relationship hit a stride. That spring, they celebrated a year and a half together. But once again, Paul's secrets crept into their relationship. One night, as they were lying in bed together... He abruptly confessed that his last relationship had ended because he'd had sex with a sex worker in Thailand. He went on to admit that he was a sex addict. This was what he attended 12-step meetings for. Kate was stunned. She wanted to believe Paul was in recovery, but he was so secretive and closed off it was impossible to know for sure. Kate looked away, trying to focus on the wrinkles in the sheets, the folds of the blankets, she didn't dare look up and meet Paul's eyes. This was everything she'd ever feared. She had tried her entire life to avoid falling in love with an addict, and somehow, it had happened anyway. It was like her life was entirely out of her control, as if she was predestined to repeat the mistakes of her mother, her grandmother, every beleaguered woman that had come before her. It was true. Paul's addiction was different. Sex, not alcohol. But that just made his struggle all the more foreign and overwhelming. Kate suddenly felt exhausted. She expected love to be difficult, and she had never been afraid of hard work. It just seemed this relationship offered little else. Paul blamed his father for his struggles with sex addiction, Without elaborating, he called the man perverse. If Paul did witness sexually deviant behavior from his father, it may have primed him for psychological issues later in life. Susan McPherson, a senior lecturer at Essex University School of Health, explored the relationship between childhood trauma and sexual compulsivity in adulthood. She found that childhood emotional abuse, childhood exposure to pornography, and parental sex addiction were all associated with sexual compulsivity and adulthood. Growing up in a home without affection also could have contributed to Paul's sex addiction. Alexandra Katahakis, the clinical director of the Center for Healthy Sex in Los Angeles, has said that sex addiction is a defense against the overwhelming feelings the addict cannot regulate, Feelings that have their roots in childhood, when primary caregivers proved unreliable at best and abusive at worst. Having failed to attach in a healthy way within these initial relationships, the addict now struggles to form bonds with others. Kate worried about how the scars from Paul's past were affecting him and their relationship. Just as he had in Scotland, 
he made comments about how he wasn't attracted to Kate anymore, even as he told her how much he loved her. For Paul, sex was completely separate from love and intimacy. For months, Paul willingly participated in therapy, but he didn't seem to be getting any better. Kate wondered if a change of scenery might help. Since Paul lived in a home once owned by his parents, Kate thought it might contain too many bad memories. She suggested they start over in a new home, but Paul kept finding excuses not to move. Next, Kate suggested they get away by going on another trip to Europe. Paul agreed. They traveled to France and spent two weeks exploring the French countryside. Unfortunately, it wasn't exactly the romantic vacation Kate envisioned. She found herself at the mercy of Paul's erratic moods. He was rude to Kate's friend who they were staying with and seemed uninterested in sightseeing. He was so distant that Kate felt as if she were on the trip alone. At the end of the holiday, Kate decided to stay in London for a work assignment while Paul was set to go home. Before he left, Paul repeatedly badgered Kate about where she planned to stay and what she was going to do once she was alone. Kate suddenly felt uncomfortable with his questions. She didn't want to tell him where she was staying, so she said she hadn't decided yet. Once Paul was gone, Kate explored London to find a new hotel. While searching, she realized she was being followed. A strange man tailed close behind her, even as she went in and out of shops and storefronts. A few hours later, she thought she'd lost him, but as she crossed the street towards her favorite bookstore, a man approached her from the other direction. When they crossed paths, he punched her in the chest, then walked away briskly. Kate was left shaken by the seemingly random assault. She called Paul and told him what happened. He used it as an excuse to try to convince her to come home early. When she refused, he became angry. At the end of the week when she did come home, she found that Paul's anger toward her had not dissipated. He seemed to be punishing her. He asked questions that were designed to hurt her. He criticized her clothes and makeup and made jokes at her expense. But at the same time, he also seemed clingier. He told their therapist that he'd never wanted to make a relationship work as much as this one. At night in bed, he wrapped his arms around her tightly. Sometimes he pleaded with her not to leave him. He told her, I need you. Kate believed it was true, but things only got worse. Though Paul's behavior didn't cross the line into physical abuse, there were times he couldn't seem to restrain his anger. One night after a disagreement, he went upstairs to be alone. Kate heard a pounding sound reverberating through the house. Kate went upstairs and found him punching the drywall. When she asked what was going on, he replied, I'm doing this so that I don't do something I'll regret. Kate suddenly realized that she might be in real danger. She refused to sleep in the same room with Paul that night. She began to mull over an exit plan. It had become clear to her that the relationship couldn't continue. Not long after that, Paul said something even more chilling. Out of the blue, he asked her if it bothered her that he kept a gun in the house. Kate didn't even know he owned a gun. Apparently, this was Paul's way of telling her, 
She tried to explain why the prospect made her feel unsafe, but her fears didn't move Paul at all. He told her he intended to keep it. For weeks after that conversation, Paul repeatedly mentioned the gun as if to remind her it was there. They'd argue about it, but their argument always ended the same way. He wasn't going to get rid of it. Kate said that at this point, in the spring of 1994, she began looking for an apartment. She knew it was time to leave. At first, she tried to act normal. She didn't want Paul to catch on, but it was difficult. Paul's behavior grew increasingly disturbing. He made sexual comments about other women he saw in passing, pointing out those he found attractive or those he felt were dressed too provocatively. The comments weren't always directed at adults either. Paul openly leered at young teenage girls. Kate believed he was probably sleeping with other women behind her back, though she didn't bother to ask for confirmation. She figured he would probably lie anyway. Finally, it got to be too much. Kate told Paul she was going to move out as soon as she found a new place. She told her friends and family as well. She was surprised when more than one person asked if she was safe. Paul had always tried to make everybody like him, but some had seen through his superficial charms. They were relieved she was finally leaving him. One of Kate's brothers invited her to stay at his place until she found something permanent and Kate took him up on the offer. When Paul realized that she was finally leaving for good, he tried to keep her from going. He told her she might as well stay until the end of the summer when it would be easier to find her own apartment. He tried to coax information out of her, where she was going, who she was staying with. But Kate refused to tell him anything. For once, Paul didn't get upset. He didn't yell or lose his temper. Then, just before Kate walked out the front door, he gently took her hand, smiled, and told her, I'll always be with you. Thanks again for tuning into Crimes of Passion. We will be back Wednesday with part two on Kate Brennan and Paul's story. We'll discuss Paul's disturbing campaign of revenge against Kate, which left her afraid for her life. You can find more episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals like Crimes of Passion for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Crimes of Passion on Spotify, just open the app and type Crimes of Passion in the search bar. We'll see you next time when true love meets true crime. Crimes of Passion was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Trent Williamson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Crimes of Passion was written by Christina Pamies, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon. I'm Lainey Hobbs. Hold up. 